Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to turn our attention to your word. Father, open our ears, our hearts, our minds to respond to your word. Be at work here by your Holy Spirit, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. We have a great series uh, lined up for you uh, over the coming uh, five weeks. Uh, It's called Five Truths That Change the World and Will Strengthen Yours. Uh, They did change the world. We're hoping that they'll strengthen yours. I want to start with uh, a quick reflection about religions. Uh, I think it's quite often uh, we can sit back, perhaps not all of you here, but you can sit back and think, look, on the whole, basically, isn't everyone doing the same sorts of things? Uh, There's generally the name of God floating around somewhere. There's prayer. There's gathering. If you kind of blur your eyes a little bit, isn't it all basically the same thing? I mean, can't we just, and this is kind of one of those classic things, can't we just coexist? Uh, Which is sort of an attempt to say, don't worry about your differences. We should all be just some sort of funky slogan where we can get on. Um, I think at some level, uh, the desire for tolerance and a world where we can coexist is perfectly reasonable. So so don't hear me talking that down. But the idea that everything is basically the same and there are no real distinctives is profoundly wrong and actually doesn't do justice to anyone's religion. Because after all, if they're all the same, wouldn't we all be doing the one thing? We're doing five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve things, aren't we? And so there must be some distinctives, and and at some level it's completely arrogant to suggest that they're all basically the same, why don't you just get along? So what we want to do today is is not really, I'm not exploring a bunch of other religions, I want us to have a look at Christianity, I want to look very particularly at our style of Christianity that we uh, profess here. Uh, It's a bit like this, Uh, these are my keys, I think Carrie said when she looked at that photo, that's a really ugly set of keys that you've got there. Incidentally, if anyone has a very attractive set of keys that they'd like to show me, or Carolyn for that matter, please do. But okay, here's my ugly set of keys. Now, at one level, you can say, hey, here's a bunch of keys. They're all just keys, aren't they? Well, at one level, that's true. They all are keys. The question is, which one unlocks the door to my in-law's place? You can tell from back there, can't you? It's really obvious. What, What if we moved in a little bit closer? I could tell you that this one is the key that unlocks the door to my in-law's place, right? But you have no way of knowing that. It just looks like another key. The only way that you'll be able to find out that this key is the key that we need to be talking about is when we examine it a little bit more closely. And in fact, the thing that makes this key the key that opens the door at my in-law's place is actually this pattern here. Sure, they're all keys, but there's something very distinctive about this key that will render all other keys utterly useless at the door to the house that is not mine. They'll all look key-ish, but none of them will open the door. This is our message. Blur out, stand back from religion, they all look the same, but there's only one that will unlock the door. Only one that will unlock the door. So we're looking at five points of the distinctive key that is Christianity. We're going to talk about, in this talk today, the Bible alone, the centrality, the importance of the Scripture. We're going to talk next week about grace alone, the place of grace, unmerited favour from God. We're going to talk about faith alone, 
the way to take hold of God's offer of grace. We're going to talk about Christ alone, that it's faith in Christ himself, not just a general faith, but faith in Christ that saves. And then lastly, we're going to see that the whole of our lives is to be devoted to God's glory alone. They're the five things that we're going to be exploring. They're five things that make Christianity distinct. And I'm going to say beautiful and powerful because they're what God has revealed to us are his way for us to be right with him. So uh, let me ask you, as we think about this first one, uh, when you find yourself under the pump, uh, under pressure, what's our highest authority? What's the place that we turn to? Uh, For some of us, it might be, hey, we're having a really tough time. I'm going to call my parents. For some of us, that option doesn't exist. So it might be close friends. For some of us, it might be, I'm going to turn to my bank balance and see if I can spend my way out of it. Some of you will be going, well, I clearly can't do that, so it must be something else. What's our highest authority? Some of you will go, all right, I just need to get a pen and paper out and think carefully through what I need to do, what my next steps are. I'm going to plan my way out with reason. Some of you are going to go, I don't know, I'm feeling a bit stressed. I think I'll go and play a round of golf, or in my case, go and ride my bike, and everything will feel better when I come back again, right? We just fall back on our experience. I'll feel better, and it'll be better. I want to suggest to you today that other forms of highest authority, where we turn, where we seek our true north, shouldn't be family, friends, golf, bank accounts. It should actually be God's word. should be our highest authority, the first point that we turn to. Of course, we want to say that God, at the absolute level, is our highest authority, isn't he? It's God himself. God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our God is indeed our highest authority. And as we think about that, how will we get to know what God's on about in the world? Well, there's four ways that we can do it. Maybe maybe we can find it from Scripture. Maybe from reason, our, our thinking, our reason. From our experience or from tradition. We're going to say today, as we look through these four things and try and work out where should we ground our authority, that God reveals himself in Scripture, speaks to us, makes himself known in the Scriptures. And so today, I want to put my conclusion up front, and then we'll work out how it is. I'm going to suggest to you today that as a church, we want the Bible to be our highest and supreme authority. Our highest and supreme authority. We're going to refer to traditions, traditions of the church, not just It's our tradition that we wash up on Sunday night, but we leave it on Saturday night. That's not what I'm talking about. The traditions of the church, the teachings handed down. We're going to respect reason. It's good to think things through, but all of these are subordinated under, they're below, not as important as Scripture itself. And then lastly, we've got experience there. It's not completely invalid, but the highest thing is the Bible. And so there's a way that the Reformers spoke about this, the people who changed the church, talked about sola scriptura. The Bible is our supreme authority. Uh, Whether you want to um, pick up this particular turn of phrase in this way, don't worry. There is a lot of literature that references sola scriptura. And if you're wondering what it means, this is what it means. 
But you don't have to hang on to that. What I want you to do is see that the scripture is our supreme authority above all else. So let's use those things. Let's use scripture. Let's use tradition. Let's use reason. And let's use experience to see, can we find that the Bible is indeed supposed to be our supreme authority? And in order to do that, I'm going to get you to participate with me. Why don't you get one of these out? Uh, The reason that you should have one handy is because we love the Bible here at New Life and we think it's our supreme authority. So we'd love you to have one handy. What I would like you to do is open with me to page uh, 1,127. 1,126. 1,126, Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read some verses here and then draw some conclusions. And what we're going to do is we're going to work through the Bible here and see, does the Bible point us to expect that it's the supreme authority? Have a look with me, page 1126, verse 18 of Romans. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What do we see here? First thing we see is that creation speaks. There's something that you can learn from God's fingerprints on the world. We can't learn in any way everything. But we can learn some things. We can learn that God's eternal power and his divine nature are shown in the world around us. There is a God, he's eternal, and he's powerful. You can learn that from nature, but that's all. The Bible tells us first that God speaks in creation. Let's have a look at somewhere further on. 2 Peter, if you're in Romans, go towards the back of your Bible. Keep flipping towards the back. We're going to go towards Revelation, which is the last chapter, on page uh, 1,225, we'll find 1 Peter chapter 2, 1,226, 1,226, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 19 to 21, 1,226, says this, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of humans. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's Peter, one of the Lord's disciples, and what he's saying is this. The prophets spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Old Testament here, which is what he's referring to, God's Holy Spirit enabled his voice to be heard through the prophets. The conclusion? God speaks by his Holy Spirit through his prophets. The Bible tells me that. It wasn't just guys making it up with their heads. It was God speaking through people. You with me? Okay. So creation speaks, God speaks 
through his prophets. Very good. Hebrews chapter 1. Go towards the front just a little bit. Hebrews chapter 1 is on page 1204. 1204. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 2. And I'm going to try and stop at verse 2 because it's just excellent. But here we are. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2 on page 1204. The next step in our argument that the scripture is indeed the supreme authority is this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Okay, next step is here. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. We already know that, right? We've got that one sorted. But in his last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He sent his word into the world, the person of Jesus. And next point here is this one. God speaks ultimately through his son. The living word. Brilliant. God speaks to us through his son. Next step. Have a look at Luke chapter 4. There's a couple more of these, but you're doing well. I want you to see, I'm glad you're flicking around. Luke chapter 4 is on page 12, uh, sorry, 1030. Page 1030. 1030. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21 says this. This is one of the uh, stories, accounts of Jesus' life. Luke writes it and he says this. He, Jesus, went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began, to, he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What's the point? Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The son, Jesus, said the scriptures pointed to him. God had spoken through the prophets. The prophets had spoken of one who would come. Jesus says, I am the one. I am the word, the one who was to come. So scripture says it's all about Jesus. Next point, to Peter, back up the other end. It's good. Revelation, come back from Revelation to Peter. Uh, it's on page 1227. To Peter chapter 3 and verses 15 to 16 says this, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things which are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Very simple point being made here. Peter, one of the disciples of the Lord Jesus, is talking about Paul and his writing. It's encouraging, isn't it, to hear that Peter says sometimes Paul's writing is hard to understand. Here's the point. 
Peter says Paul's letters are scripture too. So the New Testament is scripture. Next point, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Come back a little bit more just before Hebrews. Go towards the front of the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm, gonna, I'm almost done. 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's on page uh, 1199. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, says this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What do the Scriptures do? Scriptures make us wise for salvation. They are breathed from God and they thoroughly equip God's servants. Well, where where else are you going to turn? I want to find out about salvation. It's in the Bible. I want to find out how to live the Christian life. It's in the Bible. We find in the Bible God's breathed word equipping us. Scripture helps us be saved and equips us for good works. That's what the Bible says about itself. It's pretty good. Here's the last one. And it's literally the last one at the end. Go to the back of your Bible and come back to Revelation chapter 22 and verses 18 to 19 on page 1254. Revelation 22, 18 to 19 says this. I warn everyone who words... who Here's the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this, in this scroll. Now he's talking very specifically about the book of Revelation. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. I think it's fair to say it's a good application for what to do with the Bible as well. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. Nothing is to be added or subtracted from God's word because we have in it all we need for life, godliness, and salvation. All right, I've just used the Bible to say that Scripture should be the supreme authority. You may or may not agree, but I think it's very clear from the Scripture that the Bible is our supreme authority. What about tradition? Well, here's where I turn to another little book. Um, We're an Anglican church. Anyone know that? Okay, very good. We're an Anglican church. There's a little book uh, that helps guide us. If you've done our partnership course, you'll have seen this before. Has has anyone else seen this? Okay, very good. Some of you have. Russell's laughing at me. Of course he has. Uh, This is the Australian prayer book. And in the back of it, it has what's called the Articles of Religion. Basically, it's a constitution for the Anglican Church. What makes the Anglican Church Anglican? If you've never read it before, there's 39 of them. Uh, They're in Roman numerals, which Matt enjoys, don't you, Matt? As a bit of a test for everyone. Uh, We are looking at article... What's that article number up the top there? Oh, look at you guys. Straight to the head of the class. Basically... Sorry? Russell remembers when they were normal numbers. That's very good. Thanks, Russ. I think, I think he's trying to... Yeah, anyway, very good. 
Uh, here's what Article 6 says. So this is, as Anglicans, this is what the Anglican Church says it's believed. This is our tradition. Here's what the Anglican Church says about scriptures. Now, uh, we have to apologise for the language. It's ye olde schooly language. Okay? But there's gold in here. Bear with me. Okay? There's gold in here. Of the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for salvation. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation. So that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. In the name of the Holy Scripture, we do understand these canonical books of the Old and New Testament, of whose authority was never any doubt in the church. What's it basically saying? If you can't find it in the Bible, no Anglican church should require you to do it. Is that simple enough, clear enough? So we will say we love our tradition. Our tradition says we lift the Bible up. Our tradition says we should respect the Bible as the supreme authority. Our tradition says if it's not in here, we're not going to ask you to do it, which isn't meaning to say it doesn't say anything about morning tea rosters in here, so I'm not going to do it, right? That's not what we're saying. What it's saying is it shouldn't be required of any man or woman it shouldn't be required as an article of faith. You're not going to get saved by anything that isn't in this book. You with me? Now, I happen to think that's a brilliant tradition, and I love it, and I love that it's clear, and that's part of our constitution. You can take great comfort in that, not over the Bible, but a great affirmation of what the Bible says. Well, that's tradition. How about reason? What if I ask you to, to trust in the Bible from your reason? I've proved it from Scripture. I've said it's in our tradition to believe that it's a supreme authority. Here's a reasonable reason. First thing I'm going to tell you about is archaeology. There's lots of archaeology that says that the Bible is true. A, a, a great example is a, a king called Sargon, who uh, no one could find any reference to outside of the Bible, and so a whole bunch of scholars thought must be made up. They thought this is a clear example of the Bible making things up until they dug up King Sargon's palace in about 1850 and went, ah. Oh. So the Bible was the only ancient document we have ever that's referenced King Sargon and now we've found his physical palace. What does that tell us? Well, it's reasonable to assume then that the Bible is reliable in what it's telling us. Manuscripts. Uh, there's a bigger number than this, isn't there, Matt? There's 24,000 things, but I'll tell you about 5,600 things. There are 5,600, 5,600 bits of the Bible, little, little scrappy copies of it, that date to within 100 years of when it was first written. To put that in context, no other ancient document has this much support. And all of the support is a 1,000 years or 700 years apart from when it was originally written. What we're saying is the Bible has copies of it that are within 100 years and it has more than 5,500 of them. That's pretty helpful. On top of that, those 5,500 are more than 99.5% accurate to what we have today. That's pretty reliable. And the copy of the Old Testament book of Isaiah that was a 1,000 years old, was checked with our current manuscripts and found to be greater than 95% accurate. 
What we have is a Bible that is well-preserved, that speaks to real history and is absolutely reasonable to be believed as your supreme authority. Here's a great quote, which I think is very reasonable. A guy called Robert Redman, he says this, If God has revealed truth about himself, about us, and about the relationship between himself and us in Holy Scripture, then we should study Holy Scripture. It's as simple as that. That's pretty good, isn't it? God has spoken. He's spoken about us and him. If that's true, we should read it. Seem reasonable? I think so. Eminently reasonable. We're saying that the Bible is our supreme authority. I was going to share just quickly. Here's my experience. Uh, This is my first Bible. I won it in a colouring in competition from Scripture Union when I was seven years old. Love it. Uh, Here's my study Bible that I had next. Um, It's got... Well, it's got a minty in here from whenever I last closed it up. Um, I love this Bible. I used to read it every day. This one here, scrappy though it is, was in my briefcase for the whole time I was working full-time, all the way through uni, all the way through into my first time in church. I've been reading the Bible every day as part of my life. Well, not every day, but as part of my life for more than 30 years. I can tell you that I've found in this book life, hope, challenge, change, support, rebuke. I've found this to be the word of God speaking to me. And I love it. And I don't know what my life would be like without it. But I have been so thoroughly changed by the God I have met in this book that all I can do is encouraging you to pour yourselves into knowing God through this word that he has made known to us. Well, that's the Bible as supreme. How would we explain it to someone else? I think if you could... If you could think about this, if you put these four cards on the table and you said to people, what would you say is your supreme authority? Where would you turn? And ask people to look at them and work out what they'd say. I think that would be really helpful. You would certainly learn a lot about other people, wouldn't you? As they say, well, I think that my reason or my family or... What we are saying, what we are saying is these cards need to be ordered in this way. Scripture... Tradition, reason, experience. The Bible is our supreme authority, not our only authority. What does this stop me doing? If I believe this in that order, what does it stop me doing? Well, the first thing it stops me doing is this. I think this is our world, isn't it? Experience is my supreme authority. If if it hasn't happened to me, if I haven't done it, if I haven't experienced it, it doesn't exist. Experience is our supreme authority. We would say, no, that can't be right. More than that, and you should hear this very carefully, it will also stop us saying, solo scriptura. The Bible is our only authority. We have no interest in tradition. We have no interest in reason. We have no interest in authority. I'm not saying that. We're saying that each of them should find their place underneath the Bible as our supreme authority. Well, what must be different now? I'm going to suggest very very quickly here that before the Reformation, the Reformation was when uh, the Catholic Church split into the Catholic and Protestant Church. It's a massive part of church history. Matt's studying it at the moment. He would love to talk to you more about that, I'm sure. Um, There are very important people here. I'm not here to give you a church history lesson, although every one of these points has been 
fought over at great length. Let's just quickly see that the authority source here of tradition is the church. Reason or understanding uh, the world around and then God in the scriptures and then experience. Before the Reformation, at least tradition was above scripture as the most important thing. The way the church said things should be. What the Reformation did with people opening the Bible and reading it for themselves was this. Putting scripture back up the top. Whatever can't be proved from scripture isn't to be asked of anyone. I think our world today looks a little bit like this. The authority is self, self, God, and then the church, yeah? Church is totally irrelevant. And what we want to say to you today is, let's get this round the right way. Let's put God and then the faithful witness of the church above ourselves and our, and our own experience. There was uh, one particular guy I want to tell you about just before, well, the Reformation's just starting. Uh, a guy called William Tyndale. Uh, he was having an argument with a guy who was pretty fired up. The guy who was pretty fired up said, we are better to be without God's laws than the Pope's. Tyndale was infuriated by such Roman Catholic heresies. Well, okay, there you go. And he replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws. I think he's a bit fired up at this point, but listen to what he says. I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plough to know more of the Scriptures than you. What was his passion? The issue was, Scripture was, in Latin. In churches only, read to the people in a way they couldn't understand it themselves. And his passion is, I want to make sure that the ploughboy, the ploughboy, knows more of the scripture than you. So what did he do? Well, he's an extraordinary man, a brilliant intellect. He was fluent in eight languages. He translated the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew, okay? Did an extraordinary job, was hunted down and chased as a fugitive, he put out his first New Testament in 1534. This is a copy of it. The printing press had just been invented so they could do it, so it wasn't just handwriting it. So he put this out, and then some, one of his friends gave him up to the people who were pursuing him. He was arrested, and in 1536, he was burnt at the stake because he translated the Bible into English so that everyday people could understand it. Now, that seems insane to us, doesn't it? And rightly so. But what we see in front of us, what you have there, was hard won. That you might understand it in your own language, that you might have a copy for yourself, is an extraordinary privilege that quite literally people died for. So do you? Do you know the Bible as well as the ploughboy? Let me ask you five quick questions to finish with this. Under the pump, who are you going to call? Does the scripture ever get a look in your life? God, what would you say to me? How would you sustain me? How would you encourage me? How would you speak to me, Lord? I have your word, your precious word, and it's dusty on my shelf. Who are you going to call? Will you and I be satisfied that our Bibles are half-read? Chronicles is too hard. Minor prophets are called minor because they're unimportant. 
Can you and I legitimately say we love the Lord, we value the Scripture as the supreme authority, and I've never read all of it? Is that okay? What do you know from Scripture that you are ignoring? What do you know is God's clear command for you that you are ignoring? And if you are, how can we say it is the supreme authority in our lives? Let me ask you this question. I hope a whole bunch of you are saying, of course I have the Bible as my supreme authority. Praise God if that's the case. What I want to ask you is, when was the last time the Bible, your love for God and his word, caused you to change something in your life? When was the last time something profound changed in your life because you saw it in the scriptures? Because God spoke to you through his word. When did it make a life-changing difference to you last? And will you let it? And lastly, do you have any of that scripture that the ploughboy is supposed to know tucked away in your heart, memorised in your head, If we were to take this Bible out and yours and everyone else's, what would you know of God's word? How much is buried in your heart? This, this is the first key to the distinctive nature of Christianity that we believe. The Bible alone is our supreme authority. I'm going to finish with these words from Psalm chapter 1. I want you to hear how beautiful it is. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his Lord day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers." Heavenly Father, might we be the people who delight in your word. Would we meet you daily in your word, Lord? Would we hide it in our hearts, Father, that we might not sin against you? Convict us, change us, restore our passion, Father, that we may be a church whose authority is found supremely in your word. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.